Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Welcome to Sports Time Machine here on the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. I'm Anna Kagarakis, and each week we head down memory lane as I take you back in time and remember some of the greatest moments in sports history. Leave your flux capacitor at home. All you need to do is subscribe to the show on iTunes or any of your other favorite directories like Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, Luminary, and TuneIn. Now, there have been so many great moments in games in sports history, but this week we travel back to a sad day in baseball history and a day that shattered a player's reputation, but not just any player, a legend in the game a home run king, and one of the two players that may have saved the game after the baseball strike in 1994. We look back on the infamous Sammy Sosa corkback game. To remember the game and what it meant to Sosa and Major League Baseball, I'll chat with two incredible writers. ESPN senior writer and host of the ESPN Baseball Tonight podcast, Buster Only, will join the show. Then I'll chat with someone who was at the ballpark that night covering the game, Chicago Sun-Times sports journalist Rick Tellender, both with stories you may have never heard before. But before we get to the interviews, let's rewind to June 3, 2003, when the Chicago Cubs hosted Tampa Bay. Top of the first inning, Sammy Sosa at the plate. Here's sound from the game. Sammy had a double in the seventh inning last time we met. Maybe that'll get his bat going. Sammy six hits away from 2,000 in his career. 3-2. Bouncing ball up the middle. A run's going to score. Anderson, the throw to first in time. That'll bring home Gonzalez. Gonzalez to third. Gives Sosa his 25th RBI and a broken bat. And the Cubs lead by one here in the first inning. Well, this isn't and They're good. looking for a few more pieces of the lumber. No, they're looking to see what's in the bat. And they want to see if what's in the bat is really the bat or if there's anything in there that shouldn't be in there. And Chip, the wow. only time I've seen something in there is if the bat is corked. Let's hope that it's just a spot that's rotten as opposed to a spot that's corked. They found something in there. Now here comes Dusty Baker, and they will examine what's left of the shattered bat. Obviously, if there is something inside there, they're going to toss Mr. Sosa. Bob Rosenberg talked with Tim McClellan, and he said when the bat split, there was cork in the bat. That's what he's saying. That's why Sammy Sosa is ejected from the game. McClellan says Sosa was caught using a corked bat in the first inning. Takeaway an RBI. Takeaway a first inning run. And takes Sosa out of this ball game. He is ejected for using the altered bat. Whatever punishment that they're gonna do it, uh, I accept it. Um, and it's been a tough week for me. Once again, I just uh, want to apologize to the, everybody up there. The mistake that I make. Sound courtesy of Fox. Why a cork bat? The strategy is. If you hollow out the inside of the sweet spot of the bat and replace the lumber with cork, it will reduce the weight of the bat. A lighter bat means a faster swing and a faster barrel means longer home runs, right? And not necessarily. According to one researcher, the only advantage of using a cork bat is a psychological one. 
But could a faster swing allow players to put the ball into play more, resulting in less strikeouts? Well, the equation that determines a batted ball's distance is P equals MV, where P is momentum, M is mass, and V is velocity. But as physics is not my forte, let's just sum it up. A quicker bat may help hitters slightly catch up with pitches, but it actually reduces the player's ability to smack home run. Not a big benefit for sluggers like Sosa, where tallying the long ball is the stat that everyone is eyeing. Now, if you're struggling at the plate, maybe there's a benefit. But at the end of the day, it is illegal. Major League Baseball does not permit the use of cork bats. So, it's cheating. Sammy Sosa received an eight-game suspension for the incident. However, it was reduced to seven games after an appeal on June 11th. He finished the season with 40 home runs and hit two more in the 2003 NLCS against the Marlins. Cubs led the series 3-1 before ultimately falling in seven games. But that's a story for another day. For now, let's turn back the clock to June 3rd, 2003. Rhodes? Well, we're going, we don't need Rhodes. All right, let's head back in time with the one and only, Buster only, ESPN senior writer. You know him, you love him. Buster, I love all your work. I've been reading all your work for years. And you're somebody I really wanted to talk to about the Sammy Sosa cork bat incident. So let's go back to June 3rd, 2003. First off, where were you when you heard about Sammy Sosa's cork bat when the bat actually shattered? And what were your initial thoughts? I was home and I was watching uh, live on television and I was shocked. And the reason why I remember that so specifically was that was literally my last day at the New York Times on my way to ESPN. And so I was in transition from one job to another and, you know, had that little window of luxury of time. Uh, and, and I remember just being absolutely um, shocked and not shocked. I think I was more shocked by the, by the reaction to it because of everything that was, uh, you know, possibly going on with Sammy and, um, and the way that uh, so many baseball fans just lost their minds over this piece of cork and his bat. I mean, I remember thinking how you love this guy and he was just so likable and it just felt so dejected. Now, 17 years later, what are your thoughts looking back at it? Well, first off, the, one of the factoids that jumped out at me was that the home plate umpire uh, who picked up the bat and wound up taking it to the other umpires and they examined it was Tim McClellan, who just happened to be, you know, this is one of you know, the fam- most famous moments uh, in baseball history in the last 25 years. Mm-hmm. And Tim McClellan also happened to be the home plate umpire for the George Pret- Pintar moment. Oh, I didn't even so realize that. So uh, you that. watch the video of George uh, come storming out of the Royals' dugout to charge the home plate umpire, that was Tim McClellan. So that's crazy. <laughs> I'm sure that is, yeah, a hundred percent. And I was thinking to myself, is you know that the, uh, when Sammy swings the bat, it shatters. You see pieces going flying all over the place, and Tim has his look on his face as he picks up the bat and he sees the little spot of cork, and he knows in that moment exactly what's coming. In fact, when Dusty Baker comes out to talk with him, Dusty, uh, the Cubs manager at the time. He wasn't arguing at all. The other thing, too, that really jumps out at me, and I, and I remember when I saw it as it happened, and uh, you know, subsequently there have been studies, I was just shaking my head because it was starting to become 
uh, sort of an understanding in sport that corking your bat actually doesn't help you. Mm-hmm. But you knew in that moment when he saw the cork in his bat that uh, he was going to get dragged through the court of public opinion. Well, speaking of the court of public opinion, what was the reaction like that you remember from the baseball writers, from fans, from around baseball, all the players, when you hear that Sammy Sosa had the cork bat? Uh, same that you just described. Um, because I think for so many fans, they looked at Sammy as being, wow, you know, this is someone who has a lot of fun uh, and he's so accomplished. And it turns out he's a big cheater. Uh, and there was a lot of the, you know, I know a lot of fans, their reaction, their perception of Sammy really changed after that moment. And again, my context, I think, was different. Uh, I don't know what Sammy did or didn't do uh, back in the 90s. I've, I've always assumed because it was fairly pervasive in the sport at the time that he used performance-enhancing drugs. And so, um, you know, as that conversation was going on, and people were like, oh, my God, he used a cork bat, which, as I said, probably didn't even really help him. <laughs> because, it, you know, if you, to put a spot of cork in your bat the way Sammy did, it actually compromises the integrity of the bat. But the larger thing for me was, no, if, if people were going to be upset about cheating in any regard, it wouldn't be for cork bat. But that's where it was, and I was. That's why I said I was a little bit surprised by casual fans. But that was uh, that was the context for you. That was the context for them. Yeah. Well, after he got caught, Sosa came out saying that he took the wrong bat and that it was a bat that he used for batting practice. It was a mistake. Did you believe him, or did you want no. to believe him? <laughs> Absolutely not. Uh, look, I know there are a lot of players who. You know, there's, baseball has a long history or had a long history of players who corked their bat. Uh, you know, there's a famous, I believe the year was 1973, Greg Nettles. I think he was playing with the Indians or the Yankees but, uh, or the Twins, but he, he swung his bat, it shattered, and a bunch of those old super balls came bouncing out of the barrel of the bat. I know of one team, absolutely specifically, that in the 90s had a room where they they uh, used that for woodworking, for corking bats. Huh. And then, of course, in, in 1994, uh, probably the most famous cork bat incident in, in baseball history, when the umpires confiscated the cork bat of Albert Bell, and he wound up getting suspended. So when Sammy said that, I was like, ah, no, I don't believe that at all. Uh, you know, my dog ate my homework. Uh, <laughs> and I, I just knowing also how specific and how careful players are about their bats, I didn't buy it from the get-go. You know, that story, Albert Bell, you had sent me that story, and that that was a story I had forgotten about because of what age I was then versus where Sammy Sosa was when the cork bat, bat incident happened. I feel like that one is not as easily remembered, even though that's a crazier story. I mean, you explained this in one of your articles <laughs> saying it was straight out of Mission Impossible. Exactly. So 1994, uh, first inning, Albert Bell, one of the best hitters in baseball, comes to the plate for the Indians. They're playing in Chicago. The White Sox obviously had some good intelligence, and they they asked the home plate umpire to confiscate his bat and check it for cork. Well, uh, it was taken, and it was put behind a locked door in the umpire's room. After the game, the umpires went back into the to their room, and they found that the bat had been switched out during the course of the game, uh, behind a locked door, and the FBI was called in, <laughs> and they began to take fingerprints, and eventually the, the bat was returned. Now, for years, it was unknown exactly how that happened. How did the, you know, a, a cork bat, Albert's cork bat, 
get taken out of a locked umpire's room. When I was at the New York Times in the spring of 1999, five years later, I did a story because I found out about this, and the, the person who was involved in this talked on the record about it. Jason Grimsley was a longtime relief pitcher. Well, he told me this story about how when Albert's bat was confiscated, all the Indians on the, sitting on the bench were like, oh, my God. We're going to lose our best hitter. He's going to be suspended. Somebody has to do something about the bat. So Jason punched up the ceiling tile in the manager's visiting manager's office in the ballpark in Chicago, crawled Mission Impossible style with a flashlight uh, over wires on cinder on the cinder block wall, trying to find the umpire's room. At one point, lifted up uh, a ceiling tile to the groundskeeper's room. He told me later that. He thinks they were drunk, and so no one really noticed them or said anything about it. And then he dropped down, uh, finally found the umpire's room, dropped down on the refrigerator, changed the bat out, got out, and probably would not have been caught except for one major problem. Uh, Albert, every single bat that had Albert Bell's name on it, it that they traveled with was corked. Every bat, okay? Yes. So when, when uh, Jason dropped down into the umpire's room and switched out the bat, he put in a Paul Sorrento model bat uh, instead of an Albert Bell bat, and that's how the umpires knew for sure that somebody had uh, taken the bat. Eventually they gave it back, knowing the FBI was getting involved, and Albert wound up being suspended. That's insane. I, I need to dedicate a show just based on that incident, but talk about taking one for the team, right? Oh, well, and, and I, I never forget. You know, I, I heard that story, and then Jason actually was uh, – I was looking when I was covering the Yankees for the New York Times, uh, and I saw a list of the spring training non-roster invitees, and there's Jason Grimsley's name. And my, I made up my mind, like, I'm going to get that story. I'm going to get that story on the record. So I got to know Jason at the beginning of spring training, and I walked up to him one morning and said, hey, Jason, if you happen to be the guy who extricated Albert Bell's bat out of the locked umpire's room and we got some off-the-record assurance you wouldn't be suspended – uh, would you be willing to talk about it? And he looked at me with his great Texas grin and said, if I happen to be that guy, that'd be great. And, uh, and I can tell this story now, uh, but, you know, to his great credit, you know, one of my colleagues, I, I laundered myself out of the process. I asked one of my colleagues to approach Bud Selig and, and ask him, hey, we found out who did this. If he talks about it off the record, would he be suspended? And Bud Selig, to his great credit's response was, that's a baseball story that needs to be told. And you know, you're right. It was an interesting story. And it's, there are so many interesting stories in baseball. I think that one takes the cake. I don't know if I've ever heard <laughs> of a crazier story than that. But let's get back to Sammy here. That day, he was ejecting the first inning. By the third inning, he had apologized to the commissioner. He came out later and apologized to the fans. Did his image ever recover from that incident? No. Uh, absolutely not. I think for non-Cubs fans, uh, it, 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 uh, it's never recovered. And it's always been amazing to me when I'll tweet out um, some statistic or some mention of Sammy Sosa and a lot of casual fans. Again, they'll, they'll come back with, that guy used a cork bat. Not anything about PEDs. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think for casual fans, it didn't. But then Sammy's uh, reputation for the Cubs, I think, probably changed with the way that his exit went about, where he leaves Wrigley Field. Um, and to this day, I, I still think if, if Sammy were a friend of mine, I, I'd tell him, because he's, he's made indications in recent years that he'd like to 
get back under the fold, right? We've mm-hmm. seen, right. you know, Barry Bonds, obviously, has always enjoyed a, a strong relationship with the Giants. Roger Clemens has a working relationship with the Houston Astros. Sammy and the Cubs have been estranged, and uh, the chairman of the Cubs have basically indicated that until, you know, Sammy sort of owns up to, to whatever he did and didn't do during the 90s, they don't really feel like they can go forward. And I, I would tell them, look, you know, just just uh, just be open, be honest the way Mark McGuire was, and everybody can move forward. And I think he can go back to having his old relationship with the Cubs. But it ended so badly, I think that affected it. And it actually makes me sad because I just watched a documentary about the race for the record, the home run race between Sosa and McGuire in 1998. And... I remembered the excitement, all the theatrics, the friendship that developed between the two that season. And I know that race saved baseball, but after watching and then knowing everything now, honestly, I felt duped as a fan. And I think a lot of fans felt that way. Um, and, I, you know, I got to say, I mean, I was covering the sport my first year, uh, covering the minor leagues, 1989, 1990. And through the 90s, I know as a reporter – you know, it was always something, you know, players would talk about off the record, you know, that they're, they think that there's a lot of PED use. And for four or five years, a lot of my conversations with my editors, uh, people I worked with is like, you know what, we need to get at this. We need to find a way. And it was always, let's get a player to talk about it. We need a player to, to talk about it. And in 2002, I wound up doing a story about general managers and the way they use steroid speculation to fashion contract offers and these were general managers going on the record and and when i posted that story i felt proud and then i kind of felt awful because they thought you know what those are the stories that i should have been doing in the 90s rather than trying to focus on one player going or two players going on the record or finding uh you know an ex uh you know, uh, workout partner or ex-wife or somebody who was angry, mm-hmm. you know, making an accusation, it would have been much more effective to to educate fans, look, there is a, an expectation that, uh, you know, there's a belief that a lot of players are using PDs. And as someone who covered the sport in that time, I, I wish that I had focused on that earlier than what I did. And that way, fans like yourself maybe would have had, had a better understanding of the context. Yeah. But do you think there's any way that he'll still be remembered for the positive out of his, you know, out of his baseball career? Because right now you think of so many things. You not only think of that home run race, you think of also the cork bat, the alleged PED use, the bleaching cream. That was the, the latest thing. Yeah. All this it seems to be overshadowing one of the most exciting seasons in baseball history. 100%. And look, um, you know, as, as you and I talk, Roger Clemens, Barry Bonds, you know, the greatest hitter of his generation, the greatest pitcher of his generation, they're not in the Hall of Fame. Sam, Sammy's, it's amazing to me how far away Sammy Sosa, despite, you know, being ninth place all time in home runs, uh, is, is not even close to being a Hall of Famer. And the interesting thing about that, and I, you know, I've been on the record. Uh, I stopped voting four years ago because I didn't like the way the Hall of Fame was changing the votes to try to tilt things. I voted for Bonds. I voted for Clemens. I really think you have to look at all these players within the context of their times and for Sosa, for Bonds, for McGuire, uh, you know, for for Roger Clemens, like thousands and thousands of players, (laughs) major leagues and minor leaguers reusing PEDs. That's the true context. And I always feel like, you know, Sammy Sosa, McGuire, Bonds, Clemens, they get extra scrutiny. And you know why? Because they were the best players. Yep. 
Like if, uh, you know, some backup second baseman who was using it, it, there was something came out. No one would care. But because these guys were the best players, they got the best, the most scrutiny. But I can't stand the retroactive morality. And the fact is their stars have been diminished. Uh, and I really don't think any of them are going to get it all the way back. So now when you think of Sammy Sosa, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? 1998, uh, no doubt about it, uh, you know, because that was an important year. Now, I do think that, the, you know, people, the, the narrative that, you know, Sosa McGuire saved baseball, it's more complicated. You know, coincidentally, I covered the Orioles in 95 when Cal Ripken broke Lou Gehrig's record. I was at the Baltimore Sun, and I remember how much good Cal did for the sport that year. Uh, you know, the Yankees getting back to the World Series is a traditional power, 96. I think that helped. The, the Mariners, with their great run at the end of 95, that helped. But, yeah, I mean, Sosa McGuire that year and all the attention and, you know, batting practice becoming uh, uh, must-watch, especially uh, for McGuire that year. You know, he told a story in recent years about how John Henry, then the owner of the Marlins, uh, came down into the clubhouse after he learned that Mark wasn't going to take batting practice in Miami. Uh, and he went down to personally ask him, please, can you take batting practice? I mean, think about that. How, how, uh, how much, how, how, you know, what a big deal that was. And, and all the attention and, you know, the, the attendance being brought back after dropping 20% following the 94-95 strike. And, and Sammy, and you, you, you made reference to this, the joy that Sammy and Mark shared uh, and, you know, the, the happenstance that Mark broke the record against the Cubs, so Sammy was in the ballpark at that time. That was really cool. And while, you know, we, we, I think there are always going to be uh, questions about, you know, how they got to that moment, there's no doubt that, that those moments were really powerful for baseball at the time. They really were powerful, and I always remember also Sammy actually being happy for Mark McGuire when he hit 70 as well. Yes. It was an interesting time because it was a friendly competition between the two. It was exciting and it was fun, but unfortunately the cork bat incident was kind of the start of the downward spiral for Sammy Sosa, it looked like. I totally agree with you. Yeah. I, I think that's the exact right context. That the, the downslope started with that, and as I said, as someone who'd been covering the sport for a while, it surprised me that that was the, the crossroad, but you're exactly right. Buster, thank you so much for joining me and taking a step back in history to talk about Sammy Sosa, and thank you for everything, and hopefully looking forward to some baseball eventually this season. And we cross our fingers. Yes, we're going to do that, but for now, you could also listen to Buster's podcast, the ESPN Baseball Tonight podcast. Uh, where can people listen to that? I know they can go to their favorite platforms. Yeah, ESPN.com slash PodCenter. You can find that. Uh, I send out every day on my, uh, t- at, uh, my Twitter feed, Buster underscore at ESPN, or at, I should say, at Buster underscore ESPN. Uh, I I'll tweet out links on that. And, yeah, we, 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 in lieu of baseball, we've been doing a lot of storytelling on our podcast, including one day, Anna, we actually had Jason Grimsley, and I had him on to tell that story about the cork bat and the retrieval of uh, Albert Bell's uh, weapon. Oh, we got to have people listen to that one because that is one of the most <laughs> exciting stories. Seriously, I was just dumbfounded when I heard that story. So thank you so much, Buster, for joining me today. Thanks, Anna. And to read more of Buster's work, go to his Twitter page at Buster underscore ESPN. Well, now we talk to someone who is at the Diamond covering the game that night, award-winning sports journalist for the Chicago Sun-Times, Rick Tellender. Now, Rick, before we talk about the infamous game, Let's go further back to 1998 
when Sammy Sosa and Mark McGuire were chasing Roger Maris's home run record. Now, according to the Last Dance documentary, it says that Sosa was bigger than Michael Jordan at the time. Was that the case? Yes, sir. It was absolutely the case. 1998 was um, quite a year for baseball. <laughs> it was quite a year. It was exciting. I mean, I grew up an Oakland A's fan. Obviously, McGuire was not with the A's at that time. He was with the Cardinals, but I still had an affinity towards watching him and then also watching Sammy. But really an exciting time. But covering Sammy all those years, what was your relationship like with Sammy Sosa? Well, I, I got along with him. He, uh, you know, he was a very dynamic guy. I was always impressed with the fact that he had come from such incredible, humble beginnings. I mean, I'm not sure how much education he had. I don't, I'm not sure if he um, certainly didn't finish high school. He had been a shoeshine boy back in the Dominican Republic. You know, a lot of Latin ball players never really learned English. He did. He spoke it pretty well and he could communicate with him quite well. He was cheerful. He was he was not a shy guy at all. And it was, um, you know, it was fun to cover him. I wasn't a teammate of his, which would be entirely different, but uh, he had been with the White Sox. And of course, one thing about 1998, as we all know, this was the steroid monster, if you will, coming out in front of uh, the public, out from behind the curtain, players with gigantic arms, forearms. Uh, Sammy Sosa had been a live 185-pound outfielder for the White Sox. And now, by 1998, he was uh, a beefy, well-over-200-pound guy who was just a a slugger with an incredibly quick quick bat, incredibly quick. And his power was just uh, amazing. And and people loved it. It was. And it was something that people have said have actually may have saved baseball when you watch the chase. But it seemed it was it was very common at that time as we talk about the steroid era to have all of a sudden a change in their physical attributes. But let's talk about the cork back game, the infamous cork back game, <laughs> June third, two thousand three. What do you remember about that game? Well, I was there. I was up in the press box at Wrigley Field. If I'm not mistaken, it was a Tuesday, a night game. But, you know, nice weather. Uh, everything was just pleasant, and I was going to write about. Uh, an old manager for the Cubs who had come back with the Phillies. And I had a column all ready to go. Uh, it was a Lee Ilya tape where he had been a manager of the Cubs and had gone off this hilarious, profane, screaming rant. Uh, <laughs> when things were going downhill, I don't know how many years it was before 1998, or excuse me, 2003. And uh, he had a classic line something to the effect that uh, 90% of the world works, the other 10% is here at Wrigley Field, and take it downtown and print it. And there was so many bleeps, and it was hilarious. You can still, I think, probably look it up, look the tape up online. I've heard the original without the bleeps. I mean, it'll bring you to your knees with laughter. I mean, it's it's kind of pathetic. It's sad, but it's also hilarious. The guy just bubbled over into insanity. Uh, it was his anger, and he was finally back at Wrigley Field. So I had talked to him before the game. Uh, Lee was very nice, and I had this column I was working on. It was, a, I don't know, first, second, third inning. It was early in the game. Because it's a night game, we have to, as colonists, we've got a deadline. And the deadlines are miserable. They come, like, maybe in the fourth inning. Mm-hmm. So you don't know who's going to win the game, so we try to find something else to write about. I was going to write about Lee Ilya. I'm looking up as I'm typing away. 
And Sammy Sosa comes to bat, and people are always excited. And he just kind of grounds out to shortstop, and his bat shatters. It's like, well, that's, you know, wow, it's crazy, man. You've got to be careful of the shards from all these bats that are breaking. He's thrown up, but then the game kind of delays. And the shortstop, the referees, they, I mean, the umpires, it seemed like people came, the game slowed down. It's like, wait a minute, what's going on? They picked up these pieces of his bat, and all of a sudden, there's this buzz in the press box. Hey, there's something going on with that bat. Then the buzz hits, hey, that thing was corked. And we're all like, oh, my God, what in the hell? Because you don't see a corked bat. Right. Uh, first of all, they're illegal, as we know. You don't see them shatter. And you don't see somebody like Sammy Seltzer with it. All of a sudden, it's like, damn, what does this all mean? So I switched that Lee Ilya column I never wrote. I have it somewhere. I'm sure it's funny. And I don't know where it would be. Some old laptop that's probably in a junk heap. Yeah, that was that was pretty amazing. Of course, obviously, then this. That had legs, that whole story, because 2003 was a big year for the Cubs. Well, what was the fan reaction like initially then? Well, yeah, confusion. You know, there's no announcement uh, by the announcer. So people have to get it from either if they're listening to radios. You know, this is 2003, so it's pretty early on in the uh, technological mm-hmm. revolution. So I don't know if they're getting news from cell phones. I can't really recall. But I think the buzz went through the crowd the same way it went through the press box. You know, there's something else going on here. Sammy's bat was corked. And it's like, this is a big deal. So it was kind of a quiet game. It wasn't a real meaningful game. But that, as I recall, and I'd have to go back and look, but I think the crowd was kind of uh, a Twitter, (laughs) so to speak, after that. After that game, he comes out and you hear it all over the news. You hear it everywhere. I mean, this was a national story. It wasn't just it wasn't just something you saw on ESPN, you just read it in the Chicago Sun-Times. It was everywhere. Well, we didn't know it was a big story at the time. As I said, it's just kind of it's like a, an egg cracking and then you watch the yolk come out and everything and it's like, oh, there's a fried egg. Oh, now we're getting an omelet. Uh, you know, what is happening here? Oh, this is a, you know, this is a big meal. Mm-hmm. It, it was you know, it just kind of snowballed that way because what it ultimately brought into shed light on, brought into to context in a, in a sense, well, not a sense, but absolutely was, my God, what about this whole home run thing with Mark McGuire? What about uh, Sammy's, you know, 60-plus home runs more than one time? Was this because of a cork bat? I mean, most of us, we have no idea what a cork bat does for your hitting. Right. But the assumption is it's got to do something. It's more than just that magic feather that Dumbo holds that allows him to fly and then gets rid of the feather and it doesn't make any difference. Cork bat must mean something. And there is nobody, this is me speaking at that moment, there is nobody, no batter ever, who is a, 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 you know, a bona fide hitter, maybe a pitcher doesn't care, who comes out without knowing exactly which bat he has in his hands. He may borrow one from a teammate sometimes, but he knows precisely what it is, what the weight is, uh, whether he's used it before. Quite often, I like to have his name on it because it's his model. Uh, Sammy's excuse that he didn't know, didn't buy it for one second. So all of a sudden, it's like, well, damn, we got a cheater on our hands. Because we, I didn't believe it. I don't think anybody else really believed his story. And if that's the case, well, you know, how far does this reach? How far does this go? What does this mean? 
you know, one of the things in my career that I said, one of the depressing elements of it, I spent a huge part of my column writing career and even my sports writing job going all, all the way back to Sports Illustrated into the early 70s, writing about and championing cheaters, uh, you know, drug cheaters, you know, from Marion Jones to Ben Johnson to, uh, you know, all the baseball players. And, and then it, it gets into all the Olympic sports. And particularly, uh, one of the most devastating and, and the most evil, in my opinion, was Lance Armstrong. Mm-hmm. He actually lied about everything, and I knew he was lying. And people said, "Well, why don't you go after these these guys? You know, why do you why do you wait? Why did we're not, you're not writing this or that?" Lance Armstrong actually sued a British journalist and pretty much destroyed his career by saying the guy was writing lies about it which in fact were true. So we don't have subpoena power. I can't go make Sammy Sosa pee in a cup. I can't make Mark McGuire. Can't make, you know, any any of these people, these Olympians, all these champions do any of that stuff. We can't, but we can get sued for libel. And it's a very dangerous thing. So, you know, here we are stuck again. Well, what do we make of this? Are we going to call Sammy a cheater? Are we going to call, you know, who, who, what, when, where, how? What do we do without having subpoena power to actually see what drugs these guys are taking and to throw in cheating with equipment? You know, that's another thing. Is this part of baseball culture? Is this what Phil Necro using an emery board to make it, the pitches drop, do stuff like that? Is this okay or is this truly outside the lines, outside the boundaries of what fair play is? So all that came into play, and yes, it did. It was all of a sudden, all across the country, maybe, you know, all around the world if people were watching baseball. Unfortunately, cheating in baseball and cheating in sports in general is something that's not new. Now, I happened to stumble across a quote that you said in regards to Sosa saying he grabbed the wrong bat and that it was an accident. You had said, I believe that. I believe gangsters keep shotguns in their trunks to shoot rabbits. I believe the tooth fairy is married to the Easter Bunny. After all these years, do you feel the same way? That's pretty good, huh? Here's a big <laughs> tip good. of the hat, tip of the fedora to the old Rick Tellender. You know what's funny? You write this many columns, thousands. I mean, I, I must be getting close to 4,000 and some, God knows, 300 stories for Sports Illustrated articles and numerous other ones for other magazines. And you got a career behind you. You have no recollection of what you've said or done and you <laughs> hope that it's not terrible. But I'll take that. I'll, I'll still, I'll agree with what I said back then. <laughs> Good. I, I, you should. And you should believe what you said. And you stand by it. And I get it. I worked in radio for years. So it's funny when people come up and say they heard you talk about a certain story. It's like, I don't remember I said that, but you do. So I'll, I'll take right. your and word you're, for you're it. You're a youngster. <laughs> yeah. When, when you got 40, 45 years of that behind you and you'll say, I did? I said that? You were listening? What? <laughs> and now... Nothing goes away, as we know. So anything you say is there forever. Well, let's look back also more at at Sammy. But after he got ejected from that game, what did he personally do to try and help his image? And how did he perform in games to come? Well, you know, Sammy, again, got to hand it to him. He, like so many champions, they don't get ashamed. They don't get embarrassed. They bounce back. They're impervious to uh, criticism. Uh, you know, which is a great, wonderful thing if you're a competitor. It might not be the way the rest of us would feel. I mean, I would, I, I can be so easily shamed and embarrassed 
that it's wrong. I mean, it's just, I, I don't like that about myself, but you know, somebody will write in and say, you know, your columns suck. You're really stupid. But that, that, that hurts. And if they're, they have a, just a nugget of truth, I'm like, Oh God, I'm no good. I'm terrible. You know, they're right. I should quit, become a carpenter. That's what I always plan to do. Um, you know, but Sammy, nah, no, no real big deal. You know, Kiss the babies, he, you know, run around with little American flags. I mean, he was Sammy Sosa. And, uh, he didn't, he didn't hold back at all. It's like I talk about that home run derby later at um, I can't remember what year it was. It was in Miller Park, though, in Milwaukee. And Sammy's in in the home run derby. He's not just hitting home runs. He's hitting balls that are making that park seem like a pinball machine. I mean, crashing off. Uh, the beer size, the brewer way out in the outfield, hitting the uh, you know glass windows, breaking stuff. It's like, Sammy, dial it down about a hundred feet. You don't have to, you know, you hit five hundred six foot home runs. <laughs> People are just saying like me, like, damn man, nice cycle of roids, buddy. You really got some good andro. It's really kicking in because these guys just they have no shame. They did it right in front of us. Uh, Barry Bonds, all these guys, they, you know, they, they are just like defiant, which is what ironically makes them such great competitors. They do not get um, damaged by criticism. They come back the next day and play harder. And Sammy stayed Sammy, cheerful, playing his boombox in the, uh, you know, the, in the Cubs clubhouse, uh, doing his thing, you know, doing his little tap his chest, kiss his his finger, his thumb, whatever, point to heaven after each home run. Do his little hop out of the box. And I saw him do that hop sometimes when it wasn't a home run. He's watching the ball. It bounces off the wall, you know, like 400 feet away. And he gets held to – I think he might even gotten held to a single one time when oh, he really? thought it was a home run because, <laughs> because he's doing his hop. But that's Sammy, you know. That's Sammy. And that's what made it so hard that day because he was such a likable player. He was somebody you were excited to watch whenever he came up at bat. Then he was named on that list of players that tested positive for PEDs in 2003. Was that year the beginning of the end of him and his reputation? Yeah, it was. Uh, if, if we could look back and maybe put uh, a, a, you know, a graph uh, where Sammy's ascent into you know, the covers were still fed into the hearts of every Cub fan in Chicago and around around the country, around the world. I mean, Sammy was Mr. Cub. But uh, that was a uh, that was a very turbulent year. You know, don't forget, that was the year they should have gone to the World Series. And by the end of that year, I mean, things were, you know, chaotic. You know, they were five outs, right? That's the year they were five outs from uh, the World Series where they hadn't been since uh, 19, God, I, you know, I'm starting to forget all this stuff because I'm so, I got over it. We all got over it in 2016 when the Cubs won the World Series. Let's forget all those, you know, 108 years, 116 years or 2,000 years. Last time they were in the World Series. It, at any rate, there was so much going on that year. Kerry Wood, was, Mark Pryor were having great years. Uh, the Cubs were, uh, Cub fans were in a dither. I mean, just truly. 1998 was one thing with the home run derby, but this was the Cubs were about to win the World Series. We knew it. Everybody knew it. And they didn't. They were very Cub-like. So at the end of that season, uh, you know, Sammy's star was starting to not dim a little, but people had to 
if they were championing him, if they was if he was still their hero, they had to kind of forget about some little defects that might have been just kind of poking their heads up. And so everybody had to do that. That was just kind of the deal. So after all these years, you've covered Chicago sports for years. What is his legacy? What to you is Sammy Sosa's legacy? Well, sadly, right now his legacy is that of shame. He has not been welcomed back to Wrigley Field. You know, he's done these bizarre things with his skin color. He um, will not admit to any steroid use. He has not. He has not been asked to come back by the Ricketts family. It's very sad. It really is a very sad legacy. It's kind of almost a, uh, a Greek kind of tragedy in the sense that there was, you know, great ascent and then the person's own flaws brought them down. And Sammy's brought him down from the absolute peak to a person who is, I don't want to say a pariah, but at least the generations that watched him play, I don't hear a great clamoring to uh, bring Sammy back. And that's, that's tragic. He could have been there all during the World Series. He could be back here now greeting kids, doing all the things he's so good at. But um, the stigma of having cheated with cork bat, but most of all being part of the Barry Bonds, Mark McGuire, uh, you know, congressional investigation, the all the you know the different reports, the commissioners' reports, all those things. He brought us what we wanted, and then he was brought down by his uh, by, by revelations of things that were just not natural and that we actually censor. So. Right now, as, as we speak, Sammy's legacy is uh, a very tarnished one. Rick, thank you very, very much. And I appreciate you also bringing in the Greek tragedy, as my last name is Kagarakis. And so thank you very much on that. <laughs> <laughs> nice, happy okay, accident. You know, yeah. Okay. You should be in Chicago and own a Greek restaurant like all my friends. I do need to go out to Chicago and check out Greek Town. Yeah. I've never been there. You're either a restaurant owner or a painter if you're Greek. <laughs> But, Rick, I want to say thank you again very, very much uh, for joining me today and going back in time. My pleasure. A big thank you to Rick Tellender and Buster Olney for joining me to rehash the good, the bad, and the ugly. So now I'd like to hear from you. How do you remember Sammy Sosa? What's his legacy? Let me know by reaching out on Twitter at Anna Kagaragis, that's K-A-G-A-R-A-K-I-S, or by using the hashtag SportsTimeMachine. Some other interesting events that happened on June 3rd. In 1851, the first baseball uniforms were worn when the New York Knickerbockers wore a uniform of straw hats, white shirts, and blue long trousers. I'm thinking we've come a long way since then. Would love to see if the Yankees or Mets would bring that back for a retro day. Aaron Judge in a straw hat? I think I smell a promotion coming on. Just don't go the George Costanza route with all cotton uniforms for all you Seinfeld fans out there. Also, Queen's Bohemian Rhapsody went gold on this day in 1976. Hope you learned a little something today. Thank you again for listening to Sports Time Machine. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and rate Sports Time Machine on iTunes. We're available on all your favorite directories, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, Luminary, and TuneIn. You can also find the show at Believe.com and at Believe Podcast. And don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Anna Kagarakis and on Instagram at Anna Kags. 
If you're interested in advertising on the show, please contact Believe at Believe.com. Well, time flies when you're having fun. Thanks for heading down memory lane with me. I'm Anna Kagarakis, and we'll talk soon. Take it away, Freddy. Too late. My time has come. Since shivers down my spine. Body's aching all the time. Goodbye, everybody. I've got to go. Gotta leave you all behind and face Mama. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.